I'll be reading from Matthew 18, beginning in verse 21. 18.21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother <coughs> sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. He was unwilling, however, but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved, and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers, until he should repay all that he was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you, if each of you does not forget, forgive his brother from his heart. And I'll pray. We thank you, Lord God, for all that you have done in forgiving us. Thank you, Lord, that you had Jesus pay the price, the penalty for our sin, and that our, the certificate of debt against us has been canceled. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for working on our behalf to restore that relationship with you and the Father. And we pray, God, that as we look at your word again this morning, that you would deeply minister to us and that we would humble ourselves before you and truly worship you and give you thanks for all that you are and have done on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, happy Father's Day um, to all the dads that are here. I have to say that um, it has been one of my greatest joys in life to be a dad and now a grandfather. Um, there are no perfect dads, um, but I'm so grateful for the privilege that I've had and do have to be a father and grandfather and thankful for my dad, still um, a significant part of my life and the example that he's set for me and my siblings. I was, um, I'm not going to give a Father's Day message, we're going to be here in Matthew 18, and I don't usually say a lot or do Father's Day, Mother's Day messages, but um, I just was, was thinking on some things and reading some things this week about fathers and the impact that they make on their children, both sons and daughters, and I just thought for the encouragement of the dads that are here, even for the moms, that you'd be encouraged in the role that your husband's are having in the lives of your children just to read some statistics. 
85% of children and teens with behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. 85% of the children and teens with behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. Over 70% of all adolescent patients in drug and alcohol treatment centers originate from fatherless homes. Children without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty. Children without a father are nine times more likely to drop out of school, and they represent 90% of all runaway children. Scholars now know that boys and girls who grew up with an involved father as well as an involved mother have stronger cognitive and motor skills and enjoy elevated levels of physical and mental health. They become better problem solvers, are more, self, are more confident, curious, and empathetic, and they also show greater moral sensitivity and self-control. As they grow, well-fathered children are substantially less likely to be sexually involved at an early age, have babies out of wedlock, or be involved in criminal or violent behavior. They are much more likely to stay in school, do well there, and go to college. An analysis over, of over 100 studies on parent-child relationships found that having a loving and nurturing father was as important for a child's happiness, well-being, and social academic success as having a loving and nurturing mother. Some studies even indicate that father love was a stronger contributor to some important positive child well-being outcomes. Children who, um, who had fathers who read to them regularly were more likely to do much better in many important cognitive skill categories than children who did not have fathers who read to them. Interestingly, one of the strongest benefits was a substantial increase in a daughter's verbal skills. A study 10 years later found that both well-fathered preschool boys and girls have increased verbal skills compared with kids with absent or overbearing fathers. Research shows that fathers' involvement in the early months of a child's life contributes to increased intellectual, motor, and physical development. Father-involved children are more confident and successful in solving complex mathematical and logical puzzles. And this may be because fathers tend to be more specialized in and have a higher interest in analytical problems. High father involvement contributed to higher mathematical competency in young daughters. Kids with highly involved fa fathers have substantially higher cognitive skills than those children who do not have involved fathers. Another major scientific study that linked positive fatherhood involvement with lowered level of disruptive behavior, acting out, depression, and telling lies. Obeying parents, being kind to others, and being responsible. Fewer behavioral problems in young boys and girls being happier, more confident, and willing to try new things. Research from the University of Pennsylvania found that children who feel a closeness and warmth with their father are twice as likely to enter college, 75% less likely to have a child in their teen years, 80% less likely to be incarcerated, and half as likely to show various signs of depression. In a 26-year-long study, researchers found that the number one factor in developing empathy in children was father involvement. Fathers spending regular time alone with their children 
translated into children who became compassionate adults. The research is absolutely clear. The one human being most capable of curbing the antisocial aggression of a boy is his biological father. In the United States, it is the world's leader in fatherless families. Unbelievable. Research shows that fathers parent differently, they play differently, they build confidence, they communicate differently, they discipline differently, they prepare their children for the re real world, they provide a look at the world of men, and fathers can teach respect for the other sex. Research consistently shows married fathers are substantially less likely to abuse their wives or children than other men. Societies with fathers' present patterns of child socialization produce men who are less inclined to exclude women from public activities than their counterparts in father-absent societies. So another way of saying that, the safest relationship a woman can ever be in is with the, being married to the, to the father of her children. It's the safest relationship she'll ever be in. Married men, married fathers, are substantially less likely to abuse their wives or children than other men. You think about all those statistics, and if you put it, look at it from the other side of the coin, if you want to produce, and I know nobody does, promiscuous daughters who give birth to children outside of marriage, violent criminals, increased poverty, drug and alcohol abuse, high rates of depression and suicide, poor academic performance, low intelligence, a lack of empathy, low verbal and cognitive skills, insecurity, impatience, antisocial behavior, and men who abuse women. The single most effective thing you can do is, fathers, don't be involved in the lives of your kids. And mothers, to demean, exclude, or divorce the fathers of your children. Men, fathers, biological fathers, have a tremendous impact in the lives of their children. It should go without saying, but sadly, it needs to be said. So dads, we thank you and praise you for the roles that you're having in your lives of your kids. You often don't feel like you're doing much, but you are so much more than just somebody who's putting food on the table. So you can't describe the significance of it. Well, we're in Matthew 18, and this is the third um, message from this chapter, where the question was asked at the beginning of the chapter, who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, well, let's just talk about first base first. And first base is, who gets to go to heaven? And he says, nobody. Unless you are converted and become like a child, you shall not even enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven will be the most one who is most like a child. And then I believe he spends the rest of the chapter trying to explain to us what childlikeness looks like which we need because not everything about children is commendable. But the one thing that he wants to focus on with children is their humility and three expressions of humility. One is that they are very humble when it comes to looking at good and evil, calling it what it is, hating evil, loving good, 
and being willing to take whatever steps are necessary to walk away from the evil. That is a childlike heart. It is also the heart of Christ who desired nothing more than to please his Father and who would not tolerate anything in his life that would have been unpleasing to his Father. Clear, drastic, black and white when it came to good and evil, right and wrong. A childlike person will also be one that when he is sinned against, um, I'm sorry, when he sins and he is confronted, he is quick to respond to the confrontation. He doesn't need two or three people to come to him. He certainly doesn't need the whole church to come to him. He is humble. And when a person comes to him and says, Brother, you have sinned. Thank you for telling me. I am so sorry. He is humble when he is confronted over his sin. Humility will also, we don't think of it often this way, but humility, a humble, childlike person, will confront sin. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5 that the reason that the church there was not dealing with sin in their midst was because of arrogance. So if they had been humble, they would have been dealing with sin. Not what we typically think of. We think that sometimes people are or, and they do. Sometimes people respond and react and, and confront sin out of self-righteousness, and that is wrong. But a humble, childlike person will confront his sinning brother, and the sinning brother, if he is humble and childlike, will respond to that confrontation. But a third aspect of childlikeness is forgiveness, and that's what we're at this morning with verses 21 through 35. Patsy, my wife, as you know, um, if you've been here and you've heard me tell stories about her family, comes from a very large farming family. Her dad was one of nine brothers, and now at this time there are over 300 um, in that family. Um, that family tree looks more like a family shrub. Um, and I have yet to meet, I don't think I've met all, yet all the family, um, and, um, but I just, they, they grew up, these, these, um, her Father's children, uh, the, the uncles, and they're, they're all the kids, the, ne the nephews, nieces, the cousins, they grew up farming together, and a lot of what they did was planting and harvesting tomatoes. And, um, and I didn't know, but I can imagine, but they, that these boys out in the field, being largely unsupervised, being paid for the, every basket they, they picked, um, they worked hard, but they had their fun as boys would do. And occasionally tomatoes would be thrown at each other. And um, fast forward 30 years, when these boys were 10, 12 years old, 30 years later, they had developed a tradition among the cousins where when somebody got married, they would serenade them sometime after the marriage. They'd break into the home, steal the husband, and make him take him out to a restaurant where he had to feed all of them. Great tradition. And, um, and I've been in on that a few times. Um, I really was... Very happy to participate. Um, <laughs> one cousin, they could never catch him. They just, he had been married for several years, and they never were able to get him and serenade him. So they settled for second best. He was gone. He was out of the state on a, taking some vacation. And so we, I have to include myself, we broke into his home. And, um, and we thought, well, if we can't do anything to him, we'll have fun with his house. A cousin showed up that I had not met, and he went crazy on this house. And I thought, 
I know what to do, you know, and, but this guy took it to the next level. And I, I mean, I was doing things like, you know, taking labels off all the canned goods in their, in their pantry and putting a bag of tea in the shower head, you know, so when they turn on the shower, you know, they get tea that comes out all over them. And so I know a few fun things to do, but this guy shows up and he seriously has got issues. And I'm just, and I, I mean, all the things that he was doing to this house, and I finally, I looked at him and I said, what did your cousin ever do to you? Flashback, 10 years old, picking tomatoes, and he goes, with, through gritted teeth, one too many green tomatoes to the side of the head. Because <laughs> they didn't throw the head. That's bitterness. <laughs> and I'm just, wow. 30 years he'd been sitting on that, and now's his chance for payback. I thought, I like this guy. I can identify with this. Joking aside, unforgiveness is a huge, huge problem. If I've had one great joy in life, it's being a dad, but I can tell you my biggest struggle in life has been forgiveness. I had a, a friend who's with the Lord now who is a a Christian psychiatrist who used to be on our board at his hill. And he, we were talking on this subject one time, I don't remember why, and he said there was a book that had recently come out written by a Jewish atheist psychiatrist on the power of forgiveness. And the man wrote in that book, as a Jewish atheist psychiatrist, he said, if I could develop a pill to get people to take the pill and forgive. I could empty the psychiatric hospitals across the United States overnight. Wow. So this is a professional psychiatrist who is saying in his estimation, the number one cause of insanity is unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. In this parable that Jesus gives, there is a man, a servant, who owes his master 10,000 talents of silver. That's a lot of money. My margin here says $10 million. Apparently, that doesn't even begin to put it in perspective. The, the total tax levy in Palestine at this time, for a whole year, was 800 talents. This man owes 10,000 talents. The entire country's taxation was 800 talents. It took 20 years to earn one talent. So this man owes his master 200,000 years worth of labor. 200,000 years of labor he owes to this man. And this man says, have patience with me and I will pay it back. That is delusional. Delusional. And the master knew that. There is no way on God's green planet that that man is ever going to pay back that amount of money. Absolutely impossible. 
and he just forgives it. And then the guy goes out and finds a fellow servant who owes him a hundred denarii. Now, if you one denarii is a day's wage. And so a hundred denarii is, is roughly three or four months' labor. This man owed 200,000 years of labor, and he's got a fellow servant that owes three or four months of labor. And he, he throws him into prison. Verse 30, he was unwilling, however, to forgive the man. He threw him into prison until he should pay back what was owed. Wow. And so when the master hears about this, he just goes, we're done. You don't begin to appreciate what I've done for you. Obviously, it has made no impact in your life. So you are going to prison. And not just any prison. He hands him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed to him. Wow. So I just want to make some some observations, some lessons from this. And I've, there are quite a few, and I'm sure you can come up with more than what I've written down here. Our sin is astronomical. It is beyond comprehension. And it is impossible for us to deal with our sin. Wearsby says, thinking that you could repay God for what you have done is pride. That's an understatement. My sin, your sin toward God is beyond comprehension. It is astronomical. What God has done in forgiving us, we can't begin to fathom. We won't appreciate the magnitude of God's forgiveness unless we appreciate the magnitude of our sin and what it deserves. What does it deserve? Hell. And that's a temporary state. It deserves the eternal state of the lake of fire. I can't understand this, but I believe God's word. And God, who is absolutely just, who will never punish anybody one iota beyond what they deserve, says that my sin and your sin deserves an eternity of separation, condemnation in the lake of fire. Who understands the significance, the magnitude of their sin? However much anyone owes us, however much anyone has sinned against you, it is less than your sin against God. That's the big lesson coming through here. The people who have sinned against us, it's like comparing 200,000 years worth of labor to three or four months of labor. Our sin toward others may be less than what they have sinned toward us. This is where we get hung up. 
Because in my relationship with other people, and they sin against me, I go, I've never done anything like that to them. And so I start putting the scales based upon how I have treated them. And I go, man, the scales are so tipped in my favor because I have not sinned against that person the way they've sinned against me. And that can be true. Absolutely true. But that's not the point. The point is, how have I sinned against God? And however enormous somebody's sin might be against me, that enormous sin is nothing, nothing in comparison to my sin against God. The evidence that we know and appreciate how much we have been forgiven is how we treat those who have sinned against us. Jesus said in Luke 7, 47, the one who has been forgiven much loves much. One quote, one who has not realized the enormity of God's forgiveness of him is not able to forgive others. This is where it starts. You will not be able to forgive others of their sin against you until you begin to comprehend the enormity of your sin against God and His forgiveness. And then you have a place to start with forgiving others. The antidote to bitterness and unforgiveness is realizing our own sin and accepting God's forgiveness of us. So let me say that again. If you are struggling with forgiving people who have sinned against you, the anecdote is to understand, to realize your sin against God and God's forgiveness of you. That's the first thing. And also, and I take this from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul says, our hearts are open wide to you. Open your hearts to us as well. And he's speaking to a bunch of people who had done nothing but malign him and slander him and hurt him. And he says, our hearts are wide open. I tell you, I can't read that passage without being convicted. Because my heart is not wide open to all people. How did that happen? How could Paul have a wide open heart to the people who had hurt him deeply? And he explains in that chapter, and he says, in everything commending ourselves to God as servants of God. And he says, in all, and he lists all these bad things. And they're all, and he lists all these good things. In everything that comes into our life, we see God as the first cause. And we commend ourselves to him as servants of God. We give thanks for all things. You are not going to be free of the bitterness and the unforgiveness until you learn to say, God, thank you. Thank you for what you've allowed into my life. And we must recognize, fourth of all, God's sovereign power to bring good through all things. And the good is ultimately conformity to Jesus Christ. I can't think about forgiveness without thinking about um, Joseph with his brothers. And Joseph didn't pass over what they had done to him. He didn't minimize it. He didn't call it by something else. He was straight up, honest, wide-eyed, and he said, you meant it for evil. But... God meant it for good. 
That's a man who was free. Long before he got out of that, that prison, he had become free in heart. The anecdote for bitterness and unforgiveness, realizing our own, accent, our own sin and accepting God's forgiveness, commending ourselves to God as His servant in all things, giving thanks in all things, and recognizing God's sovereign power to bring good through all things. This man was delusional to think that he could pay back what he owed. Payback is a delusion. It's never going to happen. And the bigger the sin that we have suffered, the more people have sinned against us, the more delusional it is to hang on to it in bitterness and unforgiveness. Sexual abuse can never be corrected, can never be undone. Adultery Never can it be undone. How can the adulterer pay back for what he has done? It's impossible. Drunk driver slams into your kid's car and kills your child. How can that person ever make amends? It's never going to happen. And to go through life hating people for what they have done, when it is beyond their power to make amends for what they have done is delusional. It does nothing but destroy us. The debt is too great. And our debt against God is even greater. Forgiveness is something that is bestowed. It is granted. It is given. It cannot be earned and it cannot be deserved. No one deserves God's forgiveness. His forgiveness, as it says in this parable, is an expression of compassion and mercy. I would add that forgiveness is not based upon repentance. It is not based upon an apology or anything else that we do. Forgiveness is based upon what Christ has done. Forgiveness is because Jesus, God's forgiveness of you and me is because Jesus satisfied the justice of God. God was motivated by love to send His Son to die for our sin. But His love is not the basis of His forgiveness. It is the blood of Christ, which is the basis for God's forgiveness. In Matthew 26, 28, Jesus said, This is my blood, the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Every time we celebrate communion, we are saying we are forgiven, not because God loves us, but because Jesus paid for it through his blood. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Colossians 2.13, when, we when we, you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled it out, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of degrees, decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. In Hebrews 9.22, And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Why is this important? I still have more to say here. Why is it important to link forgiveness with the shedding of blood? I think it was J. Vernon McGee that said, we were not mercified, we were justified. God's mercy and love do not save us. We are saved because the justice of God has been satisfied. Our sin was paid for. And there is something in every one of us, and I think this for me has been so liberating, there is something in every one of us that says for that sin must be paid for. And that something is justice. We've been made in the image of God. And as image bearers, we know that wrong deserves punishment. And sin deserves punishment. And so the idea of forgiving somebody and them not paying for what they did, we instinctively understand is a violation of justice. How many of you have gotten upset, as I have, to hear all these stories of these liberal district attorneys who have been put into office by George Soros and people like him who are not giving people justice? And they're just letting people go. No payment for the crimes that they've committed. See, we all know this is wrong. We say in our Pledge of Allegiance, not mercy for all, but justice for all. Because that's what we instinctively know is right. It's not right to just let people off. And even God doesn't do that. God has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. And God the Father has had Jesus pay for what we justly owe. He who had no debt paid for our debt. Forgiveness is not based, I'll say it again, upon repentance or an apology or anything else we do. It is based on what Jesus has done. Forgiveness is experienced in response to repentance. So we have verses that say, repentance for forgiveness of sins in Luke 24, 47 and Acts 5, 31. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance and forgiveness of sins. So repentance is what's going to allow me to know what Jesus has done. But I'm not forgiven because of my repentance. I'm forgiven because Jesus has paid for my sin. 
I could never pay the debt that I owe. No one deserves forgiveness, but those who have been forgiven are obligated to forgive others in gratitude for what they have received. This man that had 200,000 years of, of labor forgiven is obligated to forgive those who have sinned against him. Forgiveness is based upon the truth. Call it what it is. I have found that this is part of the freedom, part of moving into, freedom, into forgiveness, is to call it what God calls it. It is sin. It is evil. I have been sinned against. Evil has been done against me, as well as calling it when I do that to others. I didn't just make a mistake. I didn't just have a lapse of judgment. I sinned, and it was evil. We are told in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 that we are to forgive as we have been forgiven. Well, what does that mean? It means that forgiveness is free. It means that forgiveness is full, that it is complete. So it's free is that I forgive without an apology. While they were pounding the spikes into Jesus' hands, what was he saying? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. While Stephen was being stoned, the same words came out of his mouth, Father, forgive them. Those men that were pounding the spikes into Jesus' hands and the ones that were throwing the stones at Stephen were not asking for forgiveness. It was being given to them. Forgiveness is bestowed. It is not earned. It is free. It is full. Aren't you glad that Jesus did, did not pay just for 99.9% .9 of your sin? If he had not paid for one sin, just one sin, if he had not paid for it, we would spend eternity separated from God. He paid for it all. And we are to forgive as we have been forgiven. It is freely given, and it is complete. And, as I've already said, it is based on Christ's payment for sin. Let me just be personal here. As one who has much experience with bitterness and unforgiveness, my dad used to say, I did not get even, I got ahead when it came to payback. And um, that was true. And I used to plot and scheme much of my life on how to pay back with my older brother in particular. I will joke and sometimes say I have a PhD in unforgiveness. I know all about it. But God has done so much in my heart and life. It's not an accomplished thing. It's not once and done. Continue to have to come to him um, for the grace to forgive. I had a relationship that could not have been more sour than what it was for 20 years. I feel that I 
did a lot to try to make amends. I apologized in person, in writing. Um, I did practical things to try to express um, love and care. And there was nothing I could do. And for 20 years, I was being lied about, slandered, maligned. It was very, very difficult. And I'm a very high justice person. And so all this stuff, and I'm looking at it and putting it in the scales and go, what I have done to this person does not begin to compare with what they have done to me. And so I'm being eaten up with it. I'm thankful. I'm, th I'm thanking God. I'm saying, God, I thank you for how you're using this in my life. I'm thanking you that this is keeping me dependent. It's keeping me in prayer. It's keeping me humble. And I truly thank God for 20 years. But I was not free. I was eaten up. And I've shared this before, but it's just, it made such an impact upon me. I was standing in the shower one morning, and I just, my first waking thought would often be that situation and how much I hated what was going on, the injustice of it. My last thought at night would be on the same subject. I would dream about it. And so I'm standing in the shower one morning again, and I just said to God, God, I am not free. And your word says, the truth will set you free. And I am not free. Why am I not free? I believe the Lord spoke to me. Not audibly. But I heard the Lord say to me, it's because you're believing a lie. <laughs> well, that makes sense. If the truth sets you free and you're not free, you must be believing a lie. And I just thought, you know, I, I'm not real bright, I guess, because I had never made that connection. And I said, well, God, what is the lie that I'm believing? And just like that, the Lord said to me, you don't think you deserve this. And I was convicted over my sin. Because what I owe God is infinitely greater than what anyone owes me. And when God told that to me, you think you don't deserve this. I knew exactly what God was saying. I deserve hell. I deserve the lake of fire. And I will never get what I deserve because Jesus paid for my sin. From that point on, I did not have to choose to forgive. God just did it in that relationship. I never thought I would see God restore that relationship, but he has. And I am so deeply grateful. It is a miracle. But it happened in my heart first to recognize that this person owes me nothing in comparison to what I owe God. Nothing in comparison to what I owe God. After 20 years, To forgive as we have been forgiven is to call it sin. It is to give forgiveness freely and fully. 
It is to give forgiveness on the basis of what Christ has done who paid for all of my sin. Let me just bring this to another level. He is asking us, telling us to forgive as we have been forgiven. The basis of his forgiveness is Christ shed blood for you and me. Jesus paid for my sin. On that basis, God forgives me. And he's telling me to forgive as I've been forgiven. So what does that tell me? If he forgives me because Jesus paid for my sin, and he's telling me to forgive others as I've been forgiven, to me this says, I cannot forgive as I've been forgiven unless I recognize not only did Jesus die for my sin, he died for that person's sin, even if they aren't a Christian. Because Jesus has said, forgive as you have been forgiven. And my forgiveness is based upon Christ's cross. And so if there is anything in Scripture that tells me Jesus died for all men, it is simply the statement that he says to forgive as I have been forgiven. I have been forgiven because Jesus paid for my sin, and I forgive others because Jesus has paid for their sin. And if I don't forgive others, when God has paid for their sin, I'm not saying they've, that they've accepted God's forgiveness. I'm saying if I don't forgive what Jesus has paid for, I'm saying that what Jesus did was not enough. And that makes me out to be God. Forgiveness does not necessarily negate all the consequences of our sin. There is immediate forgiveness, as Alan Redpath says in his, in his book on the life of David, there is immediate forgiveness, immediate cleansing, immediate restoration to fellowship with God, but a forgiven man still has to reap the consequences of what he has sown. David did. Forgiveness does not restore trust, although it does restore fellowship. Just being honest, right? Paul said to Timothy, entrust these things to forgiven men. Is that what he said? No. All men are forgiven. Entrust these things to trustworthy men. So Paul recognized there's a distinction between being forgiven and being trustworthy. And a forgiven person is not necessarily a trustworthy person. Humble people forgive. Humble people forgive. Proud people don't. Childlike people forgive. Great people forgive. It might be fair to say the greatest people we will ever meet are people who know how to forgive. They are the humblest among us. A child is quick to forgive. Forgiveness is childlike. How many of us as parents had to apologize to our children when they were only three and four years old? 
It is humbling to have your four-year-old say, Daddy, I forgive you. But I am so thankful they were quick to forgive. It is a characteristic of humility and childlikeness. Forgiveness is not only childlike, it is God-like. And refusing to forgive what Christ has paid for is playing God. It is the ultimate pride. Jesus has paid it all. Amen? And we forgive on that basis. I'll close this in prayer. God, I thank you for your mercies toward us, for the compassion, God, that you have showered on each one of us. So undeserving and absolutely unable to make amends in any sense, God, for what we have done. No amount of repentance, no amount of groveling, no amount of anything we could do, God, could begin to restore what we have done, to bring us back into relationship with you. And I thank you, God, that you have not just decreed us forgiven, but you paid for our sin through the death of Jesus. The certificate of debt has been canceled on that basis. And we have been made the very righteousness of God in Christ. Lord Jesus, stir our hearts, I pray, with your great mercy and compassion toward us. Open our eyes, God, to the enormity of our own sin and the surpassing greatness of your forgiveness that we would forgive, God, as we've been forgiven, that we'd be free from all bitterness, resentment, hatred, that we would let it go, God, as you have released the debt against us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your gracious work in us. And I do pray that we would walk with you humbly as children and just say, who am I as a sinner worthy of condemnation to hold anything against anyone else? Thank you, God for your surpassing grace and mercy toward us in Christ Jesus. In his name, amen.